quite small. Well, it's John Anthony West. Absolutely elegantly carved, geometrically perfect. Um, and they were dating from pre-dynastic and proto-dynastic Egypt, so 3 and 4 and 5,000 BC. Recently, an incredible obsidian bag bracelet was found in Turkey that they date to 8,000 BC. And even the academic acknowledgement in, 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 involves a very sophisticated geometry in its construction. Well, that's 8,000 BC. Supposed to be all hunter gatherers or rude farmers back then. How are they going to do this? What do they do? Sitting down saying, What should we all make a little place for the wife, for the little lady, for you know, her, her, our anniversary? Let, let's invent geometry so that it, so that it really looks cool. Or, no, it means that they're working with geometry, they've got the mass to do it. And you extrapolate from that to the, the strength, and go back to Tepping and all the rest of it. And then the evidence is all there. Put it this way. It's a, if it's a big, if it's a big jigsaw puzzle, there are enough pieces in place now so that you can sort of visualize the big picture. But it's not sort of, but you kind of, or we kind of know what we're looking for to get in it. Um, but again, we're um, most of us, you know, we don't have any formal. None of us have any formal backing. Um, financially, so it's all individuals doing their own work, a few of us banding together here and there, things like the Paradigm Symposium spreading the word, the, the internet spreading the word, but you know, we're, it's, it's still a long way from, let's say, from establishing itself, you know, biblical terminology, the seed has to fall on fertile ground for it to, to, to sprout and flourish, and even when it sprouts, it can be trampled into the ground by any wandering jackass. And meanwhile, though, the ground has to be prepared, and that means getting rid of all the brambles and the poison ivy. That's sort of my job. I kind of delight in the constructive destruction so that the whole thing can actually, hopefully, take root before we destroy ourselves and our planet. Well, I think the vast majority of people agree you've done a great job. So, John, I want to thank, thank you for being here. Thanks so much. All right. John Anthony West said that if he was given a billion dollars and could do whatever he wanted with it for any archaeological expedition, that instead of needing more science, what he would invest in is publicity. Well, I'm very happy to be I able to in interview Andy. him and all the top players yeah. in this field for disclosure in this form that you're seeing now because just as he said we're getting rid of the brambles we're getting rid of the poison ivy we're clearing the ground so it. that the seeds that can idea. be planted yeah. and the seeds of oh, truth yeah. can blossom into beautiful fertile new vegetables and fruits that can be very nourishing for us when we're coming up next time we're going to have part two of our interview with robert Boval. And this is where I went back and drank the haterade. I went online and I looked at what were the people saying about him on such illustrious sites as Wikipedia, which has been widely implicated as a target of government intelligence agencies. And this has even been now leaked on firstlook.org, which is the site that is now where Glenn Greenwald is doing his work and talking about the Snowden documents. We know that the government is, in fact, targeting people, talking about the things that I'm telling you right now, because they don't want you to know. But I want you to know, and that's why we're doing this show. Robert Boval fought the BBC and won, you know, and, that's why and they had to admit show. it in writing, but now, to this day, they're still claiming on Wikipedia 
that his theory has been discredited and they never referenced this groundbreaking lawsuit that he actually won against the BBC. That's coming up next time here on Disclosure. Check it out. Enduring Destiny I'm David of Wilcock, Humanity. and I thank you for watching. That was Atlantis and the Enduring Destiny of Humanity with John Anthony. Let's, let's pull up on that, man. Probably a Carrington event of immensely more magnitude. Shock is doing a lot of work on this. That actually takes out Atlantis between quotes. I mean, it destroys almost in its entirety that global civilization. What is a Carrington event? Uh, it's a, they call them a CME. Now it's a coronal mass ejection. It's a gigantic oh, solar flare. Ah, and the Carrington event itself, it was 1859 or so, um, it destroyed the electrical grid at that time, which was just telegraph wired. So that was no, that was not a catastrophe. If we had a, even a Carrington event, which is a relatively minor CME, if we had one today, it would fry everything. We wouldn't be doing this interview. We probably wouldn't be here. Or on the face of the planet, maybe. So, do you think that the destruction of Atlantis could be the result of a coronal mass ejection coming from the sun? That's that's the that's the the best theory that we have to date. That, that Robert Schaff's working on this, and it's based upon the very solid, um, unwoo work of a plasma physicist named Anthony Anthony Parat, who works at the. Uh, uh, for the Los Alamos Liberty uh, Nuclear uh, Research Center. And so the, the, the evidence is, is getting better and better for that. It's like all of the evidence we've been talking about, it's complicated. What do you think about the fact that this coronal mass ejection, this massive solar event, occurred exactly one half of the precession of the equinoxes ago in, in actual years? Um, it might just be coincidence. As far as I know, the people who are studying the, 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 the sequence of CMEs have not found a periodicity to it. It's not as though it's so far. Anyone can find that it happens every 12,000 years or every 20 to 36,000 years or anything like that. But that it does happen periodically, that seems to be well established. And Jock is of the opinion, and it's an informed opinion, that we're sort of ready for one now. And if it happens, which doesn't mean, when he says that, it doesn't mean that it's tomorrow, and it doesn't even mean that it's next century, but somewhere in the centuries come, to come, the, the chances of one happening, he thinks are pretty good. Plato's uh, Timaeus and Matthias, of course, he mentions Atlantis in, in the books, but the conventional theory is, well, People who think that Atlantis existed, they're just basing it off of Plato. Do you believe that there's any other information besides Plato's original account that would support the idea of this global civilization? Sure. I mean, there's, there's our work. There's, there's Schroller's work. There's Lance Granton's work. There's all the stuff that Graham has been working on. There's that. I mean, there's Gobekli Tepe that disappears, that they cut buried, they cover over deliberately now in... Indonesia, there's Gunung Padang, which looks as though it's fantastically ancient. There's a ton of evidence out there. Um, but, uh, but the Plato myth itself is complicated. Most people, the Atlantis hunters are always looking every month. Somebody says it's here, it's there, it's somewhere else. The Atlantis hunters are basically looking only at Plato. 
There's a very interesting book called The Pythagorean Plato by a musicologist and Sufi named Ernest G. McLean. I think he may still be alive. He'd be 10 years older or so than I am. That's old. In which he demonstrates pretty convincingly that, that, that as the, the story of, Plato, of the planet as told by Plato is actually a musical allegory designed to inform his musically initiated pupils of the of how harmony um, in music representing the, the philosopher king degenerates into tyranny through by, by musical rules actually and initially as I understand it McLean was completely didn't want to even hear about the Sphinx which is you know which actually basically proves that there was an Atlantis within inverted quotes and somewhere along the line I understand I never got in touch with him weird I could have his book came out around the same time as The Serpent. Now I'm about to rewrite, um, upgrade my, not The, not the Serpent, but uh, The Traveler's Key, which is my guidebook to Egypt. And that will incorporate McLean's work, because I think what it is, is that Plato actually gets the story, the basic story of Atlantis, of cataclysm and destruction of civilization from Solon, his grandfather, and then turns that into this musical allegory um, of, of how harmony becomes disharmony. So both are actually valid and are complementary rather than antithetical to each other. Well, you've mentioned something that's new and that most people don't know about, which is Ganum Padang. Mm. Could you sort of give us the, the, the basic 101 on that? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge structure of immense basaltic blocks that's in the middle of Indonesia somewhere. Shock uh, has visited it now, and, and Hancock has spent some time there. Um, and the blocks, so far, they haven't been able to find, see in them a coherent structure, because it may be unbelievably old, but the, this particular block formation is normally, is normally um, found as, as vertical blocks. And, and here in Gunung Padan, it's a, a kind of scattered blocks that are that were at some point or another placed horizontally. They're not as they would be naturally, and they, they keep digging down and they keep on finding this this structure deep under the earth. So it's it's still it's still at a at a beginning stage of. Um, of excavation and of course being battled by the quackademics and Indonesia quackademics all over the world uh, doesn't matter what race they're, they're from um, but there's a very brave Indonesian geologist who's gathering the forces to look deeper into Gunung Padang so yeah the, what is the dating saying in the, in the dirt around these blocks as they keep digging down how old is it it's, it's, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not that familiar with it, but from judging from Graham's uh, talk yesterday, they're, they're down somewhere around 20,000 BC, and and still finding that it's that it's human, not human constructed, I suppose, but that, that it's, there's intelligence. There's, there's intelligence. Yeah, that's right. There's intelligence in the rocks. Yeah, yeah, like that. You also mentioned the Valley Temple. Of the Sphinx. Could you cover that again? Talk about, let's just review again, the uh, water weathering on the back of the Sphinx and then the, the Valley Temple blocks. 
Well, the water weather is not so much the back of the strength. The, the strength is, is all, all of it has been weathered, but a lot of it has been restored. It's the, it's the enclosure wall behind the strength and two and on the sides of the strength. That's where the deepest weathering is because that's where the water came sweeping down the plateau and over the walls, producing much deeper weather than the strength itself, which only would have been weathered by the rainfall falling directly upon it some distant time there was lots of rain. Uh, so, and the Valley Temple is right next door, and that's constructed of core masonry of huge, these are the ones that went to stone, especially by the um, that were quarried out from the, the, the trench that they had to dig down in order to expose the core body of the trench, it's like, it's like a cat sitting in a bathtub. I think they would uh, definitely go down. She was going down with the ship. It is absolutely the smoking gun, all by itself. Has anybody mounted any type of academic objection to the dating of the Beckley Temple? Almost none. That's what's so interesting, because it's done by one of their own. It's done by an absolutely orthodox um, German archaeologist um, named Klaus Schmidt, who unfortunately died just a few months ago. Um, not, not an old man, particularly by my family. Um, who was doing all of the work, and it was his dating. Um, and talk, we were there, and Chuck was, you know, and we to talk with him, and said that the dating was impeccable. And so the archaeologists are, are just having to swallow that. What they are doing, however, is quite a bit of press. Not making major press, but it was the, the lead article in, I think, May 2011, National Geographic. And the article was not a really very satisfactory article.
another nail in that big coffin that, that buries the entire discipline. Well, <laughs> mainstream Egyptologists use Manetho's king list to date the chronology of pharaonic dynasties in Egypt because Manetho and others wrote down when these dynasties took place. They backdate it to a certain point. But then before that, they say, well, everything before that is a myth. Well, that's right. That's, that's what they do. Manitho is, is, is quite right, except he doesn't give regnal years. Up until quite recently, maybe 30, 40 years ago, there was a, various Egyptologists who had bitter arguments with each other. And there was a long, there was a long history that went back to that, that um, put the beginning, excuse me, the beginnings of Egypt around 4000 B.C., and there was a short history that put it back to about 1600 BC. So, I mean, that's a huge difference. And this was within academia, actually. But up until Schroller, they were simply ignoring those, the, the Palermo Stone and the Turin Papyrus, that talk about the rule by the, by the, by the Necheru themselves and the Shemsuhor, the sort of demiurge uh, kings that came in later as, as simply a fiction. But now the combination of, of Sphinx and Bogobekli Tepe and Gunung Badang and probably Easter Island comes into this play as well. Um, it's, now, it's now becoming not only respectable, but it's at some point or another, pretty soon I think, it's going to become irrefutable that these, this, these advanced or this advanced global civilization existed in the distant, distant past and that it went down under cataclysmic conditions, which we're now, I think, satisfactorily beginning to understand. And the whole picture is, is kind of exciting as our own stupid society, the Church of Progress, is in the process of, of, um, of, of, of self-destruction that a number of us are coming up with at least the building, let's say, the building blocks to potentially create a new civilization in the midst of the chaos. It's such a mysterious concept to think about a, a highly advanced civilization that disappeared. And as, you, as your research has concluded, they were very keen on creating monuments that had sacred geometry built into them. So this suggests some intrinsic difference in how they ran their civilization. So. Could you paint a picture for us of what you see this very ancient antediluvian civilization as being like? Yeah, I think ancient Egypt and all of the other civilizations that arise around three, 4,000 BC are, are legacies from that earlier civilization. And what fueled Egypt for 3,000 years was, in a, in a word, the quest for immortality. That we as human beings have the capacity through our own inner work, it doesn't happen just by rubbing crystals, through our own inner work to a, a, achieve a higher level of consciousness that is not subject to death, to the dissolution of the body. Everything in Egypt it, it, it was devoted to that single aim, and I'm pretty sure that that could apply to all of those other civilizations, all of which have degenerated down to our Church of Progress, which from a spiritual point of view, is probably the nadir of of the of the cycle. Um, it can't go much. All you have to do is read the read the paper any day now to see that it can't get much worse than it is now, despite the shiny technology. And 
it's you know it's 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 touch and go. I'm not saying that it, all of a sudden it's going to turn around and become a civilization again, but at least we are now being provided with the building blocks. There are a couple of hundred people at this conference at the moment, uh, you know, but there are a million watching the Kardashians or millions watching the Kardashians and American Idol. So it's it's a bit presumptuous to think that we are actually going to prevail, but. To go back to the famous line of Victor Hugo, um, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. It may be that this is the idea whose time has come. What Hugo forgot to mention, which he didn't think of actually, was that the second strongest thing in the world is the idea whose time has not yet gone. And since the time that has not yet, since the, the idea that has not yet gone has the support of all of the armies in the world, be they military or, or scientific or educational or whatever, um, there's a battle in store. Do you feel that there's research that you would like to see about trying to understand the civilization more and date its remains and find its remains? Do you think there's research that hasn't been done yet that could be done? Would you have any recommendations? Or if you had um, an unlimited budget and could just do whatever you want, what would you like to see? Well, push further along the lines that we're doing. Look, go do a certain amount of deep sea exploration on the continental shelves because that's where you would expect once the sea levels rise, it covers everything with virtually everything that was there before. And if we're correct that this globe civilization was global, we should be able to find more there. Uh, beyond that, uh, the budget, actually, if I had that unlimited budget, what I would do is media. <laughs> In other words, the, not so much necessarily the science, but to get the message out to everybody, um, not just on blogs and all the rest of it. And this is where we're hoping, in fact, to put the money together for the follow-up to our mystery of the Sphinx, except a, a global upgrade of it, of traveling to all of these places, filming them, and then putting it out, um, not, not necessarily, not first as, as a TV show, but in fact, as a, as a, you know, in the cinemas, in the movie theaters, and from there, because the technology, for all my sneering at it, allows us to do what was impossible to do up until a couple of decades ago, and that is to get the message out to everybody who's interested. And the proof is, actually, our own mystery of the Sphinx probably was seen over time by a couple of hundred million people. So the, the interest is actually there. And it's being suppressed by, by the media. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's touch and go. I'm not saying that it, all of a sudden it's going to turn around and become a civilization again. But at least we are now being provided with the building blocks. There are a couple of hundred people at this conference at the moment. Uh, you know, but there are a million watching the Kardashians, or millions watching the Kardashians and American Idol. So it's it's a bit presumptuous to think that we are actually going to prevail. But to go back to the famous line of Victor Hugo, um, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. It may be that this is the idea whose time has come. What Hugo forgot to mention, which he didn't think of actually, was that the second strongest thing in the world is the idea whose time has not yet gone. And since the time that has not yet, since the, the idea that has not yet gone has the support of all of the armies in the world, 
be they military or, or scientific or educational or whatever, um, there's a battle in store. Do you feel that there's research that you would like to see about trying to understand the civilization more and date its remains and find its remains? Do you think there's research that hasn't been done yet that could be done? Would you have any recommendations? Or if you had um, an unlimited budget and could just do whatever you want, what would you like to see? Well, push further along the lines that we're doing. Look, go do a certain amount of deep sea exploration on the continental shelves because that's where you would expect once the sea levels rise, it covers everything with virtually everything that was there before. And if we're correct that this globe civilization was global, we should be able to find more there. Uh, beyond that, uh, the budget, actually, if I had that unlimited budget, what I would do is media. <laughs> In other words, the, not so much necessarily the science, but to get the message out to everybody, um, not just on blogs and all the rest of it. And this is where we're hoping, in fact, to put the money together for the follow-up to our mystery of the Sphinx, except a, a global upgrade of it, of traveling to all of these places, filming them, and then putting it out, um, not, not necessarily, not first as, as a TV show, but in fact, as a, as a, you know, in the cinemas, in the movie theaters, and from there, because the technology, for all my sneering at it, allows us to do what was impossible to do up until a couple of decades ago, and that is to get the message out to everybody who's interested. And the proof is, actually, our own mystery of the Sphinx probably was seen over time by a couple of hundred million people. So the, the interest is actually there. And it's being suppressed, basically, by, by the media. Um, not because they're thinking that way, but because that's just who they are. I mean, the Church of Progress has its own Jesuits, who are science, education, and the media. Science creates the dogma. We're all, life is meaningless, and it's all an accident. Um, education disseminates the dogma. And the press, the media, basically either sugarcoats it or camouflages it in, you know, Kardashians and the, the stupidity that's called entertainment. Well, if you had this worldwide civilization, mm. and it's all over the world, where did these people go? They had high technology, they had high advancement. Are, are any of them left? Did their lineage survive? Well, yeah. Where did they go? Well, whatever, wherever they survived in these little pockets, um, and it took a few, a few, it took a few thousand years before they could, before they could recreate their civilizations: India, China, Egypt. All of these, as I said, are legacies. Almost certainly, they're legacies. They start, as far as our records go back, almost in, almost entirely intact. But uh, up until that point, they're not building major structures. It looks as though, actually, on the outside, and from the textbook, you'll see that nothing is going on. In fact, there was more going on than you think, but you just have to put it all together because there are little bits here and little bits there. If you, the Met, Metropolitan Museum in New York recently had a, a show, uh, curated a big show called um, Origins of Egyptian Civilization, Origins of Egyptian Art, something like that. And they got all of the artifacts that they could find together in this one very interesting show. And these were, for the most part, quite small things, but often absolutely elegantly carved, geometrically perfect, 
Um, and they were dating from pre-dynastic and proto-dynastic Egypt, four, three and four and 5,000 BC. Recently, an incredible obsidian bracelet was found in Turkey that they date to 8,000 BC. And even the academics acknowledge that this in, 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 involves a very sophisticated geometry in its construction. Well, that's 8,000 BC. It's supposed to be all hunter-gatherers or rude farmers back then. How are they going to do this? What are they doing? Sitting down saying, what well, do we all kind of make a little bracelet for the wife, for the little lady, for, you know, her, her, our anniversary? Let, let's invent geometry so that, it, so that it really looks cool for her. No, it means that they're working with geometry. They've got the mass to do it. And you extrapolate from that to the Sphinx and Gobekli Tepe and all the rest of it. And then the evidence is all there. Put it this way. It's a, if, it's a big, if it's a big jigsaw puzzle, there are enough pieces in place now so that you can sort of visualize the big picture. But it's not sort of, but you, you kind of, or we kind of know what we're looking for to get in it. Um, but again, we're, um, most of us, you know, we don't have any formal, none of us have any formal backing um, financially. So it's all individuals doing their own work, a few of us banding together here and there, things like the Paradigm Symposium spreading the word, the, the internet spreading the word. But, you know, we're, it's, it's still a long way from, let's say, from establishing itself. You know, biblical terminology, the seed has to fall on fertile ground for it to, to, to sprout and flourish. And even when it sprouts, it can be trampled into the ground by any wandering jackass. And meanwhile, though, the ground has to be prepared, and that means getting rid of all the brambles and the poison ivy. That's sort of my job. I kind of delight in the constructive destruction so that the whole thing can actually, hopefully, take root before we destroy ourselves and our planet. Well, I think the vast majority of people agree that you've done a great job. So, John, I want to thank you thank for you, David. being here. Thanks so much. All right. John Anthony West said that if he was given a billion dollars and could do whatever he wanted with it for any archaeological expedition, that instead of needing more science, what he would invest in is publicity. Well, I'm very happy to be able to interview him and all the top players in this field for disclosure in this form that you're seeing now. Because just as he said, we're getting rid of the brambles, we're getting rid of the poison ivy, we're clearing the ground so that the seeds can be planted. And the seeds of truth can blossom into beautiful, fertile, new vegetables and fruits that can be very nourishing for us. When we're coming up next time, we're going to have part two of our interview with Robert Boval. And this is where I went back and drank the haterade. I went online and I looked at what were the people saying about him on such illustrious sites as Wikipedia, which has been widely implicated as a target of government intelligence agencies, and this has even been now leaked on firstlook.org, which is the site that is now where Glenn Greenwald is doing his work and talking about the Snowden documents. We know that the government is, in fact, targeting people, talking about the things that I'm telling you right now, because they don't want you to know. But I want you to know, and that's why we're doing this show. Robert Boval fought the BBC and won, and they had to admit it in writing, but now to this day, they're still claiming on Wikipedia that his theory has been discredited, and they never referenced this 
groundbreaking lawsuit that he actually won against the BBC. That's coming up next time here on Disclosure. Check it out. I'm David Wilcock, and I thank you for watching. Right on, right on. That was Atlantis and the Enduring Destiny of Humanity. See if it comes up next with Boval. Isn't Boval kind of annoying? Kind of, kind of uh, haughty, or a little kind of egotistical, but uh, kudos for being on the right side, you know, history. At least he's, as a scientist, he's, he's a good, good man. But uh, no, just uh, hating on Robert, Robert Boval. You don't even know him. No, I don't know. I'm just going by him. Impressions. But he just seems a little uptight. But I'm sure, like, in person, he's a fucking awesome dude. I'm just being um, an asshole. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna light that and see what Midas Touch is up to. So I am a Midas Touch producer. If you're here through Midas Touch, great. Welcome, Midas Mighty. Let's see, the only mass of failure occurs in our thinking. We already saw that <clears throat> a couple times. 41 minutes ago, Trump, I mean diaper Don, makes stunning admission during Iowa rally. We've been waging an all-out war on American democracy? Are you kidding me? Just like, we'll stop at nothing. Get in the fucking headlines. Save America, right? President Trump. Those are fucking taken away and fucking cuffed, dude. in the arse because they should take it away in fucking cup. I got I got uh, taken away in for in cuffs uh, for loving of my animals. That cane that comes on the stage eligible because they're pain in the arse. <laughs> <laughs> says they should take him away in cuffs dude that like that cane that comes on the stage and pulls the person off because they're a pain in the arse instead of taking instead of putting me and all my animals in fucking prison for nothing yeah, just out of retaliation <clears throat> That's what happened. Okay, Lauren Hobart shut down by government officials for face during emergency hearing. She was screaming her head off so she can she can get some attention in the media. Oh, you 
all are allowing whore. delinquent employees to I mean, sit on their sofas at home instead of actually, actually getting to work and doing their job. This is absolutely unacceptable. This is absolutely unacceptable. Are you monitoring the work? Are you monitoring the work on a regular basis? management processes and oversight they are, whether they're teleworking or working in the office. We have systems in place that our managers use to schedule, assign, and track workloads. And that includes individual employee workloads in many cases. So real-time understanding of what actions are being processed at any particular given time. Oh, that's gonna hurt! In a to rival Beetle Group 2023, Lauren Bobert ran into some trouble this week, Beetle both group. at work as she spied with a Social Security Administration official on the subject of his staff being too incompetent. And of course at home, as President Biden spoke in her district, which has benefited as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, which Bobert herself called a massive failure. We are sacrificing... We are sacrificing to sit on their sofas at home instead of actually getting to work and doing their jobs. Uh, this is absolutely unacceptable. Whether they're working, whether they are in the office or at home, and they are. Are you monitoring the work? Are you monitoring the work that they're doing on home on a regular basis? So our employees are subject to the same performance management processes and oversight they are, whether they're teleworking or working in the office. And we have systems in place that our managers use schedule, assign, and track workloads, and that includes individual employee workloads in many cases. So real-time understanding of what actions are being processed at any particular given time. Oh, that's gonna hurt! In a nightmare to rival Beetle Group 2023, Lauren Bobert ran into some trouble this week both at work as she sparred with a Social Security Administration official on the subject of his staff being too incompetent, and of course at home as President Biden spoke in her district, which has benefited as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, which Bobert herself called a massive failure. We are sacrificing. We are you sacrificing. Are you are sacrificing American families, American families at the altar, at the altar of climate change. Is that not said of an American that can be conquered by the Democrats? But we'll begin with the hearing. She, as she has done many times in the past, but never seems to learn, went all in that because people are working from home. They're lazy. I know what you're thinking. Who better to chime in on workplace ethic than the woman who used campaign funds at a bar owned by the man seen groping her at a child-friendly musical in public? You hold Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert to a different standard than every other elected official in Colorado. We hold Congresswoman Boebert to a far lower standard. <laughs> if we held her to the same standard as every other elected Republican and Democrat in Colorado, we would be here near nightly chronicling the cruel, false, and bigoted things that Boebert says for attention and fundraising. But not to worry, the official himself came prepared. You all are allowing all delinquent, are delinquent employees to sit on their sofas at home, at home instead of actually instead of getting actually to work getting and to doing work their and jobs. Doing their job. Is absolutely this unacceptable. Is absolutely unacceptable. So our employees are working whether they are in the office or at home, and they are. Are you monitoring? Are you monitoring the work that they are doing from home on a regular basis? 
Oh. Every every employee, do you, every have, employee do you have the numbers of the hours that are submitted? Uh, are you counting how many times they're logging into their computers and responding to casework? So our employees are subject to the same performance management processes and oversight they are, whether they're teleworking or working in the office. And we have systems in place that our managers use to schedule, yeah, yeah, assign, yeah, yeah, and track yeah, yeah. workloads. And that includes individual employee workloads in many cases. So real-time understanding of what actions are being processed at any particular given time. Additionally, our employees are required to be accessible to their supervisors, clients, colleagues, and oh. external parties during work hours <laughs> free of variety of means, including instant messaging, video platforms, and telephone. They are connected to the workplace, whether they are in the office or at the home. Then why is the backlog then why is the backlog applicants for applicants increased from 41,000 to 107,000? To a number of years now. I don't think you're underfunded. I don't think you're underfunded. You're funded at the New York City Pelosi levels. levels. Uh, we just continued we just that continued main funding. Continued that so I would say at we, pandemic at levels. Pandemic levels so I would say we have an increase of over 8 million beneficiaries over the last 10 years at the same time we experienced our lowest work staffing levels at the end of FY22. That's a math problem. I mean, that is a problem That's if you have those workloads you know, increasing and you don't have the staff to take care of those <laughs> workloads, you're going to have the backlogs that you're talking about, Representative. <laughs> got them. We fucking got them. <laughs> and this humiliation comes merely a couple weeks after another Democrat enlightened her on how discourse works on the House floor, which, to no surprise, she was completely unaware of and had... <laughs> to be taught in real time. No one's and I asked the general lady to yield for a question. Someone's recognized. It's not my time. I asked you to yield. I have reserved. I have reserved. You're yes. afraid of space. If you yield for a question. Sure. Ask sure. a question. Ask what a question. funds in this bill are used uh, for the purposes you uh, okay. uh, are opposed to? Show your daughter how much you love her with this beautiful gift. It says, to my daughter. Oh, sorry, I couldn't hear the gentleman. Sorry, I'm I couldn't getting clarification. This is precautionary. This is precautionary. for what? I'm asking. There are sanctuary city policies. I think I understand. I understand what that are in place that are allowing the refuge of illegal aliens in the cities and there is a Netflix of crime and drugs. None of the funds in this bill. You were vaping, right? Isn't she the one that was vaping in the fucking theater? What funds are in this bill to be spent for that objective? I, I have seen this administration use all sorts of funds to check the land of aliens and to ensure that it will not be. There are no funds in this bill to do that. You would think would be embarrassing to someone with any shred of dignity, but this is the person we're discussing here. The same person who on the House floor lambasted Biden's infrastructure bill that her own district is now benefiting from, to which the president was sure to remind voters in attendance. We are sacrificing. We are sacrificing. You are sacrificing, you are sacrificing American families. Is in Congressman Bobert's district. She's one of the leaders of this extreme mega movement. She, along with every single Republican colleague, voted against the law that made these investments and jobs possible. And that's not hyperbole, that's a fact. And then she voted to repeal key parts of this law. 
and she called this law a massive failure. You all know you're part of a massive failure? Hmm. Tell that to the 850 Coloradans who get new jobs in Pueblo and see us win thanks to this law. Tell that to local economy who's going to benefit from these investments. Welcome Tell back, that welcome to back, anyone who welcome wants to. Shout out KMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona. Wants to listen. We're investing in America. We're investing in Americans. And it's working. Since I took office, my investing in America agenda has led to manufacturing boom that's attracted over $600 billion. $600 billion in private investment from private companies in America and around the world, manufacturing and industries of the future. When I took office, we set a goal to produce 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035. And because of my commitment to clean energy future, made in America, clean energy companies started investing here, here in Colorado. Here in Colorado, CS Wind, a Korean company, makes towers and wind turbines. I know you all know it, but people seeing this on television may not be certain. They used to make all their wind towers abroad. Then they decided to make them here in America as well. And today, CS Wind Factory in Colorado is the largest wind tower manufacturer in the entire world. In the entire world. With over 870 employees. It's simple. And considering <laughs> Bulbar only won her last election by a few hundred votes, I suggest she spends more time getting her resume in order as opposed to calling other employed workers lazy, as she might find herself at home, on the couch, not working very soon. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's recent performance of sorts that got her thrown out of the theater in Denver was a lot of things, <laughs> but it wasn't a surprise. I haven't seen a single person say why I am shocked that Lauren Boebert was rude, disruptive, and belligerent. This is, after all, the congresswoman who suggested that a Muslim colleague was a suicide bomber. I haven't seen anyone surprised that Boebert did not tell the truth about what happened. Because, I mean, days before, we just fact-checked her latest false claim about migrants. I haven't seen anyone say that it was out of character for the congresswoman to appear to berate theater staff members who were just trying to do their jobs. Really, the only surprise in all of this is that Boebert, once she got caught, apologized and said that she didn't live up to her values. Hey, Midas Mighty, what? love this report. Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. That doesn't Keep up make with the any most fucking sense. She don't need no Instagram. She doesn't need Instagram. Boeberts. I do a great impersonation of that. <clears throat> Coberts. We did that.
new lawsuits. When is that live? Six PM. That's in two minutes. New lawsuits. Trump gets crushed. Yeah, yeah. Loses key defense in criminal case. He's told. <clears throat> um. It will begin in one minute. So I'm gonna send a message. Send a message to Midas, Mighty, Midas, Mighty. <laughs> See you there, Amelia. No. <clears throat> oh shit. Oh man. They are above the law. Judge Tanya mm -hmm. Chutkin, the federal judge in Defendant Donald Trump's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. No man in this country, not even former presidents, are so high that they are above the law. Judge Tanya Chutkin, the federal judge in Washington, D.C., overseeing the March 4th, 2024 trial date in the prosecution of Donald Trump for trying to overthrow the 2020 election. That case, of course, being prosecuted by special counsel Jack Smith. And in that order that I just read, Judge Tanya Chutkin denied Donald Trump's motion to dismiss the indictment on constitutional grounds and on the basis of absolute presidential immunity. We're going to discuss that holding in Washington, D.C. Also in Washington, D.C., the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Donald Trump does not have presidential immunity in civil cases. Yeah, so we yeah. go from Judge Tanya Chutkins in the criminal case. This affirmed a lower court's ruling, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals did affirmed a lower federal court's ruling in the civil case brought by D.C. police and members of Congress against Donald Trump for civil 
damages. And you'll recall that federal uh-huh. judge Amit Mehta rejected Donald Trump's argument that he was entitled to absolute immunity. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said that Donald Trump's behavior on January 6th was campaign activity. It was part of a quote unquote, stop the steal process that Donald Trump was engaged in spreading these deranged election lies that has nothing to do with the roles and responsibilities of a president of the United States. It falls outside even the outer perimeters that could be subject to immunity in civil cases. And then in Washington, D.C., a lot going on in D.C., Donald Trump filed a motion to compel All of these records that have nothing to do with the Washington, D.C. federal case. And in it, Donald Trump is. It's freezing for some reason. Thanks for 300K on nearly. Even if it's just law enforcement surveilling me without a warrant, as usual, as I've been for the past several years. Thank you. Thanks, Obamacare. Maybe I should run my campaign from an Obama phone and then like dedicate it. Saying that he wants documents regarding our national intelligence threat assessments regarding Russian interference with the. Look. Remember that Hope poster that came out? That was his campaign. Amazing what art could do, eh? That's why, like, uh, Hitler wanted to be an artist, and that's. Got elections. I want to hear from Popak and what that is all about. Maybe it could do like a French gallery. How about garden parties? Eventually. Uh, we go from Washington, D.C., and we go to New York, where the stay of the gag order imposed by Judge Arthur Ngoron um, has been reimposed on Donald <coughs> Trump. You'll recall that there was a temporary administrative stay by the appellate division on the gag order. The gag order is now back in effect. So what does Donald Trump do thereafter? Starts attacking Judge Ngoron's wife, since Judge Ngoron's wife is not subject to the limited gag order. We'll see if that changes. Also, Donald Trump's lawyers try to 
I think, just engage in some game playing during uh, their case uh, earlier in the week where they tried to call the financial monitor, retired Judge Barbara Jones, as a witness in the case. Interestingly, not only did Judge Ngoron reject that, but shortly after retired Judge Barbara Jones submitted one of her periodic reports to the court as part of being a financial monitor, um, telling the judge that there was about $40 million in previously unreported transfers to her from the Trump organization that was identified. Then I want to talk about this disturbing lawsuit out of uh, New Jersey um, and Bedminster where a employee at the Bedminster Golf Club is alleging that she was the victim of sexual abuse there by her supervisor and that Alina Haba pretended to befriend her in order to get this victim of sexual abuse to fire her lawyer and to enter into an NDA with the Trump organization as part of a severance agreement not to sue the Trump organization. And the uh, victim in this matter says that it was a pattern and practice of grooming by Alina Haba in trying to silence her, just asking for declaratory relief to overturn the NDA and to uh, overturn the severance agreement. That and more here on Legal AF. Today is Michael Popak's birthday. Happy birthday, Michael Popak, from all the legal AFers out there, everybody. You can throw your Michael Popak emojis up with your birthday cakes. Happy birthday, Michael Popak, turning 35 years old today. Yeah, it's the, my 23rd anniversary of my 35th birthday. <laughs> very, very excited about that. Thank you, partner, for bringing that up. <laughs> it's a great year. It's a great year for the Midas Touch. Great year for the Midas Mighty. Great year for network for me personally, and I'm looking forward all these to hearts. an amazing Happy 2024 for for all involved. And we um, we got a lot to do today. You know, we we were talking before the show about this kind of micro or incremental rulings and what makes them interesting in our analysis of the law, politics, and justice intersection. And for us as law geeks, and we hope we bring that passion and that enthusiasm to the podcast and to the hot takes, is that for us, they're not incremental. They are really momental, monumental. They are um, important. And they are the links and the necessary <laughs> links in the chain to justice. We talked a lot about when you and I founded the show many years ago. Happy birthday. When I was your age, and you were fresh out of school. Um, four years take. ago about you know how we were going to do the content here, what we were going to talk about. Would there be enough to talk about? Sure. And we said that the wheels of justice move slowly, but they move in the right direction at the arc of history. I think that's what we're seeing. Um, we're seeing now, as we've, we've said before, 2020. 20 I want to be first to... Um, I want to be first to tweet hashtag MS Popak. Happy birthday. Exclamation point. 
2020, 2021 was the year of the investigation. 2022 <laughs> was the year of the indictment. 2023 <laughs> was the year of the beginning to look a lot like trials. And 2024 are going to be the trials. Um, there's been some along the way. There's been some civil things. And, and for the naysayers out there, not among our audience, but just in general, Trump, Trump's Teflon Don. He's not. Teflon Don is not. There's no, no such thing as Teflon, and you get 91 felony counts against you. You lose the civil rape and defamation case, um, and you've got three separate prosecutors, attorney generals, and then a, a group of attorney generals around the country investigating you with cooperating witnesses that used to be your lawyers. That's not the definition of Teflon Don in any way, shape, or form. And we said, just be patient that we would see appellate rulings and trials. By the way, listening to Mindest Touch. Also, while there is no express language about the immunity of presidents in the Constitution at all, the Supreme Court, in a series of cases uh, dating back for decades and being kind of synthesized in, in, in the Nixon era and then refined with some cases involving Bill Clinton, developed a doctrine stated. that based on the structure of the Constitution there's a doctrine called presidential immunity, that the founders, that the drafters of the Constitution must have intended implicitly within the constitutional regime that if a president is sued civilly, that could harm their ability to function and to do the jobs that they're tasked with under the Constitution. So you've got this case, Fitzgerald versus Nixon, which is an employment civil case for retaliation, wrongful termination by Nixon against Fitzgerald, where the Supreme Court said, even if engaging in retaliatory, unlawful of an employee may be viewed as an unlawful act that nobody would ever con because it falls within the outer perimeters of the responsibilities of what a, an executive what a commander-in-chief is supposed it is supposed to do hiring and firing a president will be protected in civil cases involving uh, lawsuits brought even in the outer perimeters of presidential duties and responsibilities. Then you had a case involving Bill Clinton, Jones versus Clinton, involving conduct alleged against President Clinton before he was in office there. The Supreme Court said, well, clearly a conduct that takes place before you're in office or after you're in office, not while you're in office, that conduct clearly should not be subject to the broad sweep of presidential immunity here. And so in the case involving uh, individuals who were injured on January 6th, D.C. police, Capitol police, and members of Congress who brought the civil lawsuit, another question had to be raised. Did Donald Trump's conduct on January 6th fall within the outer perimeter? 
uh, of their constitutional duties, even if it was unlawful and illegal um, for purposes of civil case, like the Fitzgerald case involving Nixon, or is it more like Jones v. Clinton outside of the scope of presidential uh, immunity? He's not the president. And I want to hear your analysis there on this civil case, Popak, and how we got here. But ultimately, the reason that it's more like Jones versus Clinton, this three-judge panel, one judge was appointed by Clinton, one judge was uh, appointed by Obama, and one judge was appointed by Donald Trump. What those judges ultimately agreed with is Donald Trump's conduct was in connection with campaigning, was part of his election functions. That's outside of Article 2. That's not within the outer perimeter of what a president does. It clearly falls outside of that. But how do we get here, Popak? But I wanted to give people a background in presidential immunity and the case law here. And then you can kind of get into the weeds here of that court yeah. analysis. And procedures. Yeah, and I think we've got um, amazing, we don't normally get back-to-back decisions on presidential immunity, civil and criminal, ex-president, president at the time, in one week span in the same location. First of all, as Judge Chutkin said in the other case we're going to talk about, which he found no presidential immunity to stop a criminal prosecution or indictment of Donald Trump to have his indictment dismissed. She said, and I don't know, the history of the Republic, there's never been another ex-president or president that's ever been indicted. So I don't think we're going to open the floodgates as Donald Trump's lawyers like to argue. Oh my God, this is the, the sky is falling. If you allow this and you don't impose presidential immunity, all the presidents in the future and the past will have been indicted. That hasn't happened ever. So in 45 former presidents, uh, you know, 44, 44, 45 former presidents, we never had it happen. So what what, what uh, this unique moment in time that you and I are standing, you and I probably don't even realize, and certainly our audience doesn't yet, how unique of an event, set or series of events happened just this week. You got the D.C. Court of Appeals, as you outlined, which is the boss for Judge Chutkin, ultimately, setting the precedent for the District of Columbia and all of its judges which are really all the judges that matter now when we talk about Donald Trump federally and uh, related to anything related to Jan 6, because it all emanates from there. And then you've got Judge Roberts, who is the, uh, yes, he's the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, but he also has another role. He's the administrative circuit judge that sits over the D.C. Circuit. He's the first stop on the train for an appeal coming out of this courthouse, this courtroom that we're talking about. And I never thought it was that difficult of an analysis, and certainly Judge Chutkin didn't either, and certainly she was buoyed and got the wind on her sail very quickly by the ruling just two days before she issued her ruling. Both these courts were sitting on related but not identical issues, as you as you mapped out, and how you apply Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Jones versus Clinton in terms of the civil criminal, former president, prior, pre- you know, ex-president, non-president, if you will. Um, and, and how do you apply that under what the, fa- the framers and the founding fathers wanted in terms of giving immunity at all to a person who happens to have held the title or was going to hold the title or used to hold the title of president? And so Nixon v. Fitzgerald, for me, just to tap on that for one, one more moment, I thought it was pretty clear from reading it. And, and, and that one, as long as, as you said, and as this has been developed between the 1980s and 1990s in these couple of cases that you mentioned involving Nixon and Clinton, If you're inside the outer boundaries of official duty, 
then you are you have uh, civil, then from civil liability for being sued, not in crimes, not being indicted, being sued by somebody for damages, you're going to have immunity because we don't want our presidents that we don't want our presidents to be sued for doing something that's well within at least the boundaries of their official acts or those outer boundaries that have been established by case law. That's why you and I always comment in our hot takes about judges struggling in, let's say, a removal statute to try to take a case from state to federal court with what are the outer boundaries? Like when, like when the judge in Georgia turned to Mark Meadows' lawyer and said, give me the outer boundaries of your client's role as the chief of staff. I need to understand them. And he couldn't answer it. And, there's, and courts always have to figure out what is the box of official acts and how far does that box and its boundaries stretch? Because they've got to apply this case law that says if it's inside the box and it's civil, and that guy was president or that person was president at the time, immunity. Outside the box, where he wasn't president at any time during these relevant periods, probably not. No immunity. Criminal is a whole different thing. Even the court in the five to four decision in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, Supreme Court in 82, said if it's a criminal act, all bets are off. We're only talking about civil here. And that if a person is uh, is criminally indicted for something within either an unofficial act, something outside their duties, and that's what we'll get to next, or or um, or or um, or outside or outside of that box, or criminally process, or criminally doing their official duties, they're going to get nailed. They're not going to have presidential immunity. And as Judge Chutkin said in her ruling, which we'll we'll, we'll dive into in a minute, there is no. And the framers of the Constitution did not put in a presidential immunity clause. You can all the textualists and originalists at the Supreme Court and other and other court levels can go searching and go read line by line the Constitution. And there isn't there is not a provision expressly in the Constitution to us to not prosecute a, a president, former president, ex-president, current president, whatever it is. And so you got to get to the bottom of this, and it was, and it's, and it's relatively easy because the the president under the Constitution has no role in the electoral process. Does not the vice president does? That's back to the pressure campaign against Pence. The vice president has a defined role in the Constitution and in other statutes passed after that in terms of the electoral vote count and presiding over the Senate for it and certifying the results of the election. The president's just a candidate. It's the, it's the candidate running against the other guy at that moment. There are many things a president has the power to do, as defined by the Constitution and by case law. But things related to his own election, that's called campaigning. That's called, I want to stay in office. And now you're outside, and now you're firmly in that area with no protection, just out in the open, that is where it's appropriate for criminal liability. So the good news for Judge Chutkin in, in ruling on criminal conduct of a person outside his official duties and then looking at what the framers wanted and the Federalist Papers and Alexander Hamilton wanted and all the analysis that she does, because she's very, very – she's she's a she's – a, um, a genius, really. I'm really impressed with her writing, her analysis, her research – um, how she expresses herself and her opinions. It's really it's really a thing of beauty to watch as a lawyer watching a judge, as somebody who I think is on the short list for the Supreme Court, as I've said before. And Judge Maida, who's the trial judge on the other case involving whether Donald Trump 
because of his actions that he took inside or outside of those official duties while president to, that led to the bodily harm, injury, maiming, and death of Capitol Police, House of Representative members, and others. He's being sued civilly under the KKK Act. Yes, it's an act. That, it was a statute that was passed during Reconstruction to ensure that people's civil liberties are not being violated. And, and from a civil standpoint, Judge Maida made that ruling two years ago, that the immunity uh, would not, uh, there was no immunity civilly uh, for Donald Trump to avoid being sued because he was campaigning and he was clearly outside the outer boundaries of his official duties as a president, however you define them. Now, this, I don't know why the appellate, you know, I want to hear your opinion. I don't know why the Court of Appeals sat on that for so long. Um, and so the Maida's like preparing the case for trial. I mean, he's talked about having a trial in 2024 on it. And then finally, after a, between you and me and the audience, after a lot of press over the last a week or two, media coverage saying, where's that order? Why are they still sitting on that? It's already, we're turning into January here. Why, have, why hasn't that appellate court ruled those three people? And a lot of head scratching about it. Suddenly it popped out earlier, the, earlier this week and, and hours later, Judge Chutkin put the finishing touches on her decision about whether criminal conduct of a president in this context and what's been charged in the indictment, which is not First Amendment uh, protected speech as, as alleged, but is criminal conduct outlined in paragraph after paragraph in excruciating de detail, excruciating for Donald Trump, in paragraph 10 of the indictment, in paragraph 3 of the indictment, listing the unindicted co-conspirators and all the things of conduct, elements of conduct, not speech, that they did. And the judge started the whole, Judge Chutkin said, okay, I've got the ruling that just came out in the case involving the suit against, the civil suit against Donald Trump, which said he doesn't have presidential immunity because he's a campaigner in chief only. At that point, he's outside his official duties. I think it was even easier for Judge, even if that ruling, let me put it this way, even if the D.C. ruling had not come out hours before she issued her ruling, I don't think anything at all would have changed in her decision-making. It just gave her one more piece of steel to undergird her analysis and to show her she was right and her bosses said so. So, so for you, I know you're going you're gonna to cover Chuck in more too, but why do you think the, um, what was with the delay for two years almost with the appellate court on the civil issues? I think there was a lot of cases where uh, this had an impact. There was a lot of consolidated cases. I mean, you had also, I mean, Judge Amit Mehta made this ruling. It was in a, remember the ruling by Mehta? We covered it, I think it was in February of 2022. Oh, right. And it was a 112 page order right. with massive implications on this doctrine of presidential immunity, lofty implications on the scope of presidential powers in civil cases. I want to emphasize that again. In civil cases, analyzing, and we did it in an abbreviated version here for Legal AF, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, Jones v. Clinton, interplay between them. And so the briefing here took a significant period of time. 
There was a lot of uh, amicus briefs that were filed, friend of court briefs that were filed here, um, a lot of voices wanting to have their own positions heard. And I just think the court had to come out with a very thoughtful order. It was an interesting composition of the panel here and how they kind of grasped with it. I mean, you had a Trump judge on the panel, Judge Katsas, who if, if Judge Katsas is holding that there's no uh, immunity in this setting, that's probably the most devastating news for Donald Trump, that this was a three to zero opinion with Judge Rogers, a senior uh, circuit judge, um, and Judge uh, Siri Vassan, who's and, the... And, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. And, and, no, and, and, and Judge Srini Vassan, who's the chief judge. So you have the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, you have a Trump judge, and then you have a Clinton judge. That's why, to me, this ruling is is extra devastating. And when we talk about what's going on in the Washington, D.C. ruling by Judge Tanya Chutkin, the ruling by the D.C. Circuit, to me, even gets layered on and provides special counsel Jack Smith with kind of double or triple protection, if you will, of avoiding this case being derailed before this March 2024 trial date. I, I want to discuss that, and I want to discuss, uh, obviously, more and get into the weeds, but I want to take our first quick break of the day. This is Michael Popak from Legal AF. If you're like me, you understand the pains of choosing what to wear. Let's face it, no. most clothes are uncomfortable, or too no. tight, or never actually decide you really are. Not to mention the annoyance of trying to put a good outfit together. And when you do have a good fit, you can only wear it for a few hours. It's simple and flexible press shirts, inflexible, the groans, wrinkle them, and on Peter Fit, let me down. Save 20% your corner. Even if they have. I know you wanted to make a point there, um, so I wanted to throw it back to you. And again, get your birthday going today. That's your birthday. <laughs> so my wife asked me, what do you want? Um, how big of a party? And having just had a wedding recently, I said, I don't want a party. I just want you to uh, dinner and work. And I think we're going to see a show tomorrow, but uh, thanks, thanks for asking. Yeah, the, the you want to turn to Chuck it? Let's turn to Chuck and which I want to look at. So in And Fitzgerald again from Fitzgerald. It wasn't JFK. It was the guy that that outlined. That was a civil servant that was suing. But even there, they anticipated the what if. Sometimes Supreme Court cases are different than trial level courses 
cases because judges or the the majority decision tries to anticipate the future and and telegraph where they may be. And even though it was a closely held you know, five to four decision, even Nixon v. Fitzgerald anticipated a world of a criminal president and gave the message like, you know, like a ghost of Christmas past speaking to Judge Chutkin. So I think using what was already embedded within the analysis and the dicta of the um, Nixon and Fitzgerald case, combined with her own, she did two things in her order, which again, I can't, by saying that her order was masterful, I am saying that among the writings that we've seen of judges, and you and I read these things for a living and for these sh- our show and hot take, it, it does stand out as being valedictorian. I mean, it was really well done and spot on and, and no word was wasted. It was like just efficient in its, in its devastation, which, you know, it it's, doesn't have to be prolix. It doesn't have to be thousands of pages to get to the bottom of the point. And she was trying to accomplish two things. One, she was telling Donald Trump and his lawyers, you got to do better than what you're, what this constant, refrain of the Biden administration is prosecuting its leading candidate against it in the election. It's a version of an election interference. It's completely unsupported. No, no, no back backup for that. No, no support for that. You got to stop and you got to stop telling me that what I read in the indictment is to be ignored. And you'll tell me what the indictment says and how you put it through your First Amendment filter and everything in the indictment boils down for the Trump group and the Trump lawyers to, that's First Amendment, that's protected First Amendment. Well, social media, talking, making comments, going after the election results, that's all First Amendment. And she's like, you got to stop. You got to read the indictment. First of all, she reminded them at the beginning, two things that I love. One, Donald Trump's an indicted criminal. Indicted, yeah, indicted you know, who could be convicted criminal. She said he's, he's indicted in four counts, felonies, first line of the, uh, of the uh, order. And then she says to him, as a trial judge looking at the indictment, I have to accept everything in the indictment as true. And my, my, my um, powers to dismiss an indictment are very, very limited. And so you got to show me where this privilege comes from. And it's not helpful, she's telling the Trump lawyers, to distort and create a straw man out of the allegations of the indictment. Because I can read, and I can go to paragraph 10, where all of the conduct, this is about conduct. This isn't about First Amendment speech alone. Every crime has some sort of speech. As I joke, you know, we're not charging mimes with committing the crime or mental telepathic people, you know, like, Conduct has, or crime has, has, has a speech, but not all speech is protected by the First Amendment. So it's like, stop. And her second thing that she did. The historical framer analysis, founding father framer analysis of the Constitution and, and, and the president and the protection of the president, because they did it. And they wrote in their brief, oh, Alexander Hamilton, once in the Federalist Papers, they distorted something that Alexander Hamilton said. And she said, and you're also, not only can I, there is not a presidential immunity clause in the, in the uh, Constitution for a good reason. But 
the tyranny that our founding fathers were worried about, indicting, prosecuting the former president for crimes he committed while president, is exactly what they would have expected. And then she, you know, then she turned to cases like Nixon v. Fitzgerald. For instance, they argued as one of their fallback positions, the only way a president can be tried for crimes is through the impeachment process in the Senate. She said, that's ridiculous. That's not even the plain reading of the Constitution and the clause that you're citing doesn't even say that. So I don't know, you know, I guess when they write it, like you look, you and I practice law. You and I have looked at each other's writing. And if something doesn't make sense or is inconsistent with the facts, the Constitution, the statute we're relying on, you and I will call each other out. Like, that's not what it says, Popak. It says this. You're misquoting it. That's not what the that's not what that complaint says that we're up against. And so we go, you're right, because you don't want to lose credibility with the court in easily dispatched arguments that take two seconds to knock over. No, you want to have things because you're going to one day be in front of an appellate court. And they're going to go, that's not what the indictment says. The indictment says, and then, then she got a chance to outline everywhere in the indictment. And all of the bad conduct from the fake electors that Donald Trump was involved with using, the pressure campaign on Mike Pence, Mike, uh, Donald Trump inserting himself into phone calls and meetings with, with uh, members of the state legislate, legislators, you know, state legislators, speakers of the House, that type of thing, in order to try to change the outcome of the election. And she said none of that stuff citing back to the case we just talked about at length in the civil in the civil KKK case that stuff is part of your presidential powers all of that stuff is well outside of it and we can't live in a society this is her concluding thought process or this is the this is the line of of analysis that's pulled through the entire briefing which is we are a country of law not men and no one is above the law. She said that from day one when she did the arraignment and the uh, off the indictment. And and a person that can make his own law, which is what Donald Trump and say what whether he, him saying whether he's complying with law or not complying with law, he gets to say that because he used to be the president. That's just that's just a fast track to the road to tyranny. And I'm not going to allow that. And when you and I said it yesterday in a hot take when we reported on this particular resolution. I, I am convinced, I was before and I am now, that, that Tanya Chutkin, among all of the judges that are handling matters where Donald Trump is on the other side of the V, where he's the defendant, especially in criminal matters, feels, isn't crushed by it, but feels the weight per responsibility and in history to get these decisions right and to make sure that the voters in November have a jury verdict, either in an either a conviction or an, or an acquittal for Donald Trump. And she's not going to let anything, including improper analysis, improper recitation of what's in the indictment, you know, uh, 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 claims of prosecutorial misconduct or selective prosecution or Joe Biden vendetta campaign against Donald Trump. She's not going to let any of those paper arguments get in the way of what her pulse star, which is we're going to trial in March unless my bosses at the appellate courts tell me I'm not. And we're going to treat this case like any other with the bumpers around it, the guardrails around it to, to protect America. So we're not surprised sitting in our seats as podcasters and doing this work that she rejected all of these. And she's about to reject all of these motions to dismiss the indictment and move this case towards 
towards the March prosecution. The question now is, with this order in place and her analysis so eloquently laid out, the next step on the train is obviously an appeal by Donald Trump. Comment on what, whatever you picked up with Chutkin that you thought was really fascinating. And what do you think happens next when the next a new three-judge panel, because these three-judge panels rotate, spin, you, you don't get the same panel to decide all the issues. You get a different random panel. What do you think the next three-judge panel does? Do they stay the case in order to get the decision made on this immunity issue? Or do they say, that's an interesting academic issue. Continue with your trial. We'll get back to you on the immunity issue when we're ready. What do you think happens? So ultimately the outcome seems already determined in terms of on the substance, not on the issue of the state, based on what the D.C. Circuit already ruled in the civil case that we were talking about before we were talking about the criminal case. Why I said there's double protection is that Judge Chutkin's ruling is based on the fact that this is a former president, this is a criminal case. If you look at the text, structure, and history of the Constitution and immunity, it does not apply to criminal cases involving former presidents. It's narrow on that issue. This should be a no-brainer. Then, even if you said... Even if you said what? ...provide something in the criminal context that's quasi-analogous what we see in the civil case like a Fitzgerald. Double protection I'm talking about as well, in the decision just reached by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, they said that Donald Trump's conduct is election-related, that Donald Trump was trying to overthrow the results of an election, and that clearly falls outside the outer perimeter. So, Popak, substantively, I think that it's uh, the Judge Chutkin's decision is buttressed by what the D.C. Circuit did, and I think that they'll agree with her that the Fitzgerald Doctrine does not apply and presidential immunity does not apply to former presidents in criminal context. Now, on the issue of a stay, on the issue of could this case be delayed pending adjudication on the immunity doctrine with emergency briefing, here's the thing. This is an interlocutory appeal, and the case law is pretty clear that immunity issues are always to be determined as threshold issues before trial. So, the panel's going to have to order some sort of expedited or emergency briefing, right? Because as you saw with the last um, case that we were talking about, Judge Amit Mehta's decision, the federal judge in the civil case, made that ruling in February of 2022. There wasn't a decision reached until December 2023. That becomes the key issue, Popak. And look, if I were to if I were to place a bet on it, I would say there's about an 85 to 90 percent chance that there is no stay or delay of the Washington D.C. case that. I think the judiciary wants that case to go to trial. Um, you know, the only hedge that I have is I need to see what that panel is yeah. and who that panel is. If that panel is made up of, you know, 
Trumpers and George W. Bush, and there is no countervailing voice on it. I, I just don't know what the, how that panel is going to react. So my equation changes if I know the panel, but I will say this. In the D.C. case that addressed the civil issues, and with their precedent established, Judge Katzis, a Trump lawyer, was one of the people who found that there was no immunity in the civil setting. It doesn't mean that Katzis wouldn't, I don't know how Katzis would rule on the issue of a stay pending adjudication on the immunity issue. So uh, overall, that's that's at least how I think about the process, but I would put it at an 85 to 90%. Let, let, me, let me comment on that. Um, I agree with you about the, 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 um, the panel. I think ultimately, though, any panel, given the most recent precedent, is going to find in an expedited way um, without a stay, I agree with you that that um, not just for Donald Trump, but for the future, the next Donald Trump, God forbid, or the next or Trump is Donald Trump, and then I, and then and then and then similarly with the Supreme Court, first stop on that train after that ruling was like the gag order rulings or this or that. We're still waiting on the gag order ruling for the District of Columbia. I think it, the Supreme Court is going to be less less interested in the gag order now. If the, assuming the D.C. Court of Appeals, which we are all, I'm in the 95 percentile, that now, especially since New York just gagged him again, we'll get there later, uh, Trump, that they're going to re-gag him and find Tanya Chutkin properly, gonna, so they're going to uh, support her again. She's rarely overturned or vacated or reversed by the appellate court. I think the first stop of the train um, could say, I'm not going to stay the case. He'll just do a normal appeal or he turns it over to the full Supreme Court. I think that there's at least five votes for the future of our republic to find that an indictment like this one alleging criminal conduct of an of president trying to cling to power and stop the peaceful transfer. If it can be the subject of an indictment in a criminal prosecution, I believe that's the law that five at least on the Supreme Court is going to want to set in this area following up on Clinton case, uh, Paula Jones Clinton case, and the Nixon v. Fitzgerald case. And I think that'll go quickly. And again, to your point, I don't think anything derails. I just don't think it's going to derail the March trial. I want to mention this about Judge Tanya Chutkin, and this is why we've been following all of the judges in Washington, D.C., all of their rulings. If you go back to a legal AF that we did around, you know, when was the when, when, when was the Judge Chutkin order issued? November or December of 2021, you know, or, 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 or around that time period. Judge Tanya Chutkin ruled back then the following. She said that presidents are not kings and Donald Trump is not the president. He retains the right to assert that his records are privileged, but the incumbent president Ooh, is the one hurt. who holds executive <laughs> privilege. That was regarding the early days of the January 6th committee when they were requesting documents and Donald Trump tried to block it, claiming executive privilege. He said as a former president, he has the right to assert executive privilege. So Judge Chutkin's ruling back then in November or December of 2021, whatever that ruling is, November 2021, early November 2021, that really set the tone for the January 6th committee getting these records. And we covered Judge Tanya Chutkin doing that. So compare her language back 
in uh, November 2021, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not the president. Mm-hmm. To the most recent line in this order that she says, she goes, defendant's four-year service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability <laughs> that governs his fellow citizens. <laughs> no man in this country, not even the former president, is so high that he is above the law. So when we make these predictions on Legal AF and on the Midas Touch Network about why we think the judges are going to rule certain ways, how they're thinking about the issues, it's why we track all of these decisions, because you could interlay exactly what she was saying back then and her intellectual and constitutional consistency with the ruling that she just made on Friday, rejecting Donald Trump's claim of absolute presidential immunity. She also rejected Donald Trump's claim of other constitutional immunities. Donald Trump tried to assert first And last week and the week before when that occurred, Donald Trump was bragging about it. The appellate division said that I'm the greatest and they said that I'm right. And they said that Judge Ngoron was wrong for imposing this gag order. And and look at a big win. Opak, you and Karen Friedman Agnifilo took right to uh, our digital channel here and said, no, no, no. That's a temporary administrative stay. Donald Trump's taking advantage of a loophole in the law that basically provides for these temporary stays on things like this. It's the same thing, actually, that the Washington, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, did as well. Like this is something that, unfortunately, when there's good faith belief in people following the law and and when the constitutional and and judicial norms are followed this is just part of our our process here for better or for worse and we're seeing with Donald Trump it's for worse cuz he exploits mm-hmm. it that's why the appellate division only granted this temporary stay with this article 78 lawsuit that Donald Trump filed. Remember, then the New York Attorney General, through the Assistant Solicitor General, filed a brief with the appellate division, the court that oversees Judge Ngoron, laid out 275 pages, single-spaced, all of the threats that Judge Ngoron, his principal law clerk, were receiving, immediate, direct threats. Donald Trump's response to that is, these threats may be vile and they may be um, you know, reprehensible, I think were the words, but Trump's lawyer said Trump shouldn't be just because Trump's a heckler, you shouldn't apply a heckler's veto to Donald Trump. He should not be responsible for people following what he says. Um, and then, uh, 
the Donald Trump's lawyers said that there's not any immediate threat to the principal law clerks, despite the fact that there was a declaration submitted from a safety officer of the court saying that there's an immediate threat and they need to get security for Ngoron and Ngoron's principal law clerk. So that sets the framework for what the appellate division did in um, upholding the gag order. I want to talk about that and then I want to talk about what Donald Trump did in response gag order gets reimposed, what does Donald Trump do? He attacks Judge Ngoron's wife because this narrowly tailored gag order applies to Judge Ngoron's female principal law clerk. So what does Donald Trump do next? Donald Trump attacks Judge Ngoron's wife. It's Donald Trump's MO attacking women, strong women, women in general, just attacking women um, is what Donald Trump loves to do. And I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is a case involving civil fraud. Yeah. Principal law clerk. I mean, this behavior is, it shouldn't be a political thing. It's just despicable behavior. I want to talk about what the appellate division did, Donald Trump's recent attacks. And then we'll talk about this new lawsuit against the Trump golf course, a new lawsuit in Bedminster. our last quick break of the day if you still have some last minute shopping to do before december 25th of the holidays don't worry our show sponsors highland titles have you covered with an incredibly popular downloadable gift highland titles sell a unique gift with a legal twist in the land registration act of 1979 lawmakers in scotland legally defined a Thank you. Thank yourself. Make it a habit.
No more jail deaths. I want to keep it that way. Oh, wow, man. <laughs> I didn't know you were still there. Anyway, so this is what I wrote to my friends. <clears throat> said, um, I'm appealing to Dr. B's case. Of course, they're trying to extort me for another $2,400, and I made a motion to change the judge. I made, like, ten motions, including one to get back my service dog, Dr. Baker. I brought him from Taiwan. He's my service animal. Trained for medical purposes. He's a doctor dog. I'm trying to use ARS 132910 animal cruelty statute against interfering with service dogs work and taking out two federal civil law right civil lawsuits against these rogue officers acting under color of state law. They were so effing brutal. It's outrageous. The Justice Department needs to implement nationwide standards on training these motherfuckers. They're causing so much suffering. It's incredible. Did I tell you I'm running for sheriff? Go sign my petition to run, Chica. Republican Party is full of fucking traitors, effing traitors. At least switch to independent, then you can nominate me. Let me know when you switch party. Go to change your party right away, okay? Smiley face. And send this link to your friends so they can nominate me. I want to get rid of the bad apples, about half the police force, and replace them with women, social workers, and piss tests at Brighton early every Monday morning. Go dot azsos dot gov slash xrxj no more jail deaths the statistics about pima county are frightening worst in the country pima county jail four times more jail deaths than rikers island five times more arrests than the national average these cops are just trigger happy and they're the last in the country to allow for body cams they don't want body cams and that's clear to see why they're lawless and they want to keep it that way A 
Anubis. So let's uh, learn about Anubis. Find a souvenir plot of land. This is a plot of land so small, okay. but yeah. Let's see, I'm poor. <laughs> Funny. Funny shirt party. I'm poor. The complete mythology of Anubis, god of the dead. Egyptian gods explained on John Solo, YouTube channel. 179k views. I'm poo. Just wait to take her to scale. The new girl cave of I have a level 88 dragon fish ring, a golden horse hat, a steel finger genie knife. The gods of death have a major public image problem. It seems like every time we talk about a death deity, a chthonic character, an underworld overlord, I've got to do damage control thanks to Hollywood's insistence on portraying these figures as evil incarnate. You've got hell murdering thousands of people and conquering Asgard and Thor Ragnarok, Hades Asgard. plotting against Olympus in every movie he's ever been in, and then there's Anubis. His associations with death combined with his animalistic appearance has led to films like The Mummy Returns and The Pyramid portraying him as a violent, power-hungry villain when in reality, he is the god of minding his own business. It is true that according to Egyptian mythology, Anubis is one of the first figures we meet after we die, but that doesn't make him evil by default. If anything, we should really appreciate Anubis because he looked out for us. If it weren't for him, we'd have to find our own way to the underworld, our graves would be left unprotected against scavengers, thieves, and the elements, and we'd have to weigh our own hearts against the feather of truth which is just gross. The ancient Egyptians considered Anubis an S-tier deity. He was as important as it gets, because everyone knew they'd be standing face to face with him eventually. That's why today we're diving deep into Anubis's mythology, the unique way he was worshipped, his specific responsibilities as a psychopomp, and how his role evolved through the dynasties. Make sure you sacrifice those like and subscribe buttons so the gods bless you with more mythology and folklore content every weekday. And now, you've got to stop interrupting me, man. So we've already established that Anubis is the jackal-headed god of funerary rites, the protector of graves, and the guide to the underworld. But in order to fully grasp why he's one of the most respected deities in the ancient Egyptian pantheon, one has to understand that society's views about death and the afterlife. Because according to ancient Egyptian belief, death was not the end of your journey. Your soul and consciousness could continue on their merry way. The catch, though, was that in order to actually enjoy the continuation, there were a number of rituals that had to be conducted in the land of the living, and tests who had to pass in the underworld. It was Anubis who presided over these various rituals and processes, starting with the preservation of the body. The Egyptians believed that your body went with you to the duat, what they called the underworld. This is why funeral rituals were so important. Having your body preserved through mummification meant that you wouldn't be doomed to shamble around the blissful fields of reeds as a decaying corpse. The story behind Anubis, or Anpu as the Egyptians called him, being viewed as the almighty embalmer comes from the Osiris resurrection myth. For those who need a refresher, Osiris was the original god-king of Egypt who was betrayed and murdered by his brother Set 
the god of chaos and destruction, set chopped Osiris' body into little pieces that his wife Isis had to search for all across Egypt. And even with the help of all the king's horses and all the king's men, she couldn't put his body together again. That's where Anubis comes in. When Ra, the supreme sky god, heard Isis's cries of pain and sorrow, he created Anubis and sent him down from the heavens for the sole purpose of preserving Osiris's body. So the young god aided Isis in sewing the dead king back together and dressing him in the first ever mummification bandages. Now full disclosure, there is another version of the story where Anubis is not the spawn of Ra, but actually the bastard son of Osiris and the goddess Nephthys. In that version, Nephthys feared that her tyrannical husband Set would discover her infidelity, so she abandoned Anubis in a bush only for him to be found and adopted by her sister Isis. So in that account, Anubis wasn't created solely for this purpose, but it still went on to become his purpose. I'm assuming because reassembling your father's corpse and preparing it for burial creates quite the core memory. To put it another way, once that first mummy was made, it was a wrap. Anubis's domain and the standard for funerary practices had been established. But remember, there was more to it than just properly burying bodies. A myth found in the Jumalak Papyrus, apologies for the mispronunciation, explains why Anubis was the protector of graves and why the priests who attended the dead wore Anubis masks and leopard skins. It turns out that after Osiris' body had been stitched together, Set was still determined to destroy it. So he took the form of a leopard and tried ripping it to shreds, but Anubis stood his ground against the god of chaos. He picked up a scorching hot iron rod and he beat Set into submission. Then he flayed off his leopard skin, which was now covered in black spots thanks to the iron rod burning his fur, and fashioned it into a garment he would wear as a warning against evildoers who would dare desecrate the tombs of the deceased. There is something kind of ironic about Anubis protecting the graves though, and it's not something I've heard talked about very much. Your boy has the head of a jackal, right? And jackals are scavengers. Wicked Witch of the East, bro. Your boy has the head of a jackal, right? And jackals are scavengers, meaning they survive by eating corpses. Basically, the opposite of protecting them. Surely, the Egyptians were aware of this, especially when you consider the burial process prior to the first Egyptian kingdom was far more simple, with bodies being buried in shallow graves that gave the jackals easy access. So why was this animal chosen as the sacred grave guardian? Unfortunately, we can only speculate, but Egyptologist Toby Wilkinson suggests it was a fight fire with fire situation. A common theme in Egyptian magic and theology was fighting like with like, and so an animal that embodied a particular undesirable characteristic or whose behavior adversely affected humans was chosen as the image of the deity to guard against such eventualities. When you think about it, it's not that different than Tawarit, the goddess and guardian of families, children, and childbirth embodying a hippo. In reality, hippos were major threats to humans, and a mama hippo would happily gobble up a mother and her child if it meant protecting her own calf. But this quality was flipped on its head so that humans became the beneficiaries instead of victims. I'll admit it's not a perfect comparison because I doubt the jackals are known for fiercely defending their own dead like mama hippos are with their calves, but maybe I'm taking this all too literally, and the answer actually lies in Anubis' role as the master of the scales. 
We're about to get metaphorical up in here, my friends. But first, I want to thank our sponsor, Squarespace, for supporting the show. When deceased souls entered the underworld, they used the Book of the Dead to survive the many perils they encountered on their journey. And when entrepreneurs, creatives, or hobbyists want to enter the world of digital marketing, we use Squarespace. From their massive library of award-winning design templates to their intuitive... ...habited by flesh-eating baboon. First podcast... 